J.P. Miller. Information Day, it seems, and Mr. Carl Borg uh, uh, talked about uh, public information from the standpoint of television broadcasting and uh, showed the marvelous uh, critical acumen, I thought, when speaking of writers. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Collins uh, talked about public information from the standpoint of the churchman. And I'd like to talk about it from the standpoint of a drinker. <laughs> Before coming here today, uh, I appointed myself a personal representative of several million people all over the world, the big drinkers. That great army of men and women everywhere who, while they have not yet achieved true alcoholism, are trying their best to get there. <laughs> and millions of them are going to make it, too. <laughs> I don't know how many millions. Uh, I've read a lot of statistics on it, uh, which uh, are so conflicting they don't really mean anything, but millions means a lot to me. That scares me right there. Millions of vodka drinkers in Russia and Poland, and millions of wine drinkers in Western Europe, and millions of Scotch and bourbon drinkers in America. That's a lot of drinkers. We don't have to argue with the statisticians about a million or two of them. We got them to spare. I'm not going to go into my own qualifications in detail for this uh, honorary office I've bestowed upon myself. Haven't got the nerve to stand up here in front of a group of alcoholics and brag about my drinking any more than I have to go to a New York Yankee baseball banquet and brag about pitching for a semi-pro ball club. Let me just say that over a period of years, I've done my best to establish my reputation among my friends as a dependable man with all the products of the brewer's art regardless of race, creed, or color. <laughs> the only trouble with my drinking is that it's been retrogressing in the past few years. Instead of progressing normally as the years go by to a nice steady pattern of comfortable saturation or even alcoholism, as many of my friends have done, I found myself backing away from more drinks and avoiding patterns like poison. And that's your fault. <laughs> Or rather, that's partly your fault. It's about 50-50, I should say. Half your fault for being there, and uh, half my fault for being lucky and bumping into you. And it's that 50% or more of luck that was required in my case that I want to complain a little bit about. Back in the late 50s, I was working out in Hollywood where you may have heard... Uh, Quite a bit of drinking goes on. 
And I was doing my part as usual to try to uphold the reputation of the place. I had heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, as most people had. I knew it existed, but I didn't know anything about it. I only knew that through some mysterious alchemy, drunks went in there and got sober. As far as I was concerned, I didn't need to know any more about it than that. You get sick, you go to the hospital. You don't have to know how to do the appendectomy yourself. Besides, I didn't care about all that stuff. I was too busy having fun. This is one of those periods in my life when I decided everything could be solved by quitting Hollywood. Quitting Hollywood, once you've got the habit, is like quitting smoking. Very hard to do, and you can always think of a reason for going back. Anyhow, on this particular occasion, I quit and went back to New York, feeling very pure because I was no longer making any money. <laughs> that lasted much longer than I intended, long after the purity world. <laughs> then along came one of those providential happenings which we hardly notice at the time, but which we look back on and find that they've changed our lives. A New York television producer named Fred Cole asked me to write an original drama for him to be on on Playhouse 90. He said he wanted strong subjects like divorce, I also knew something about insanity, alcoholism. Was I interested in any of those subjects? And I told him the subject of alcoholism had always touched me very deeply because I had an uncle who was an alcoholic, <laughs> as everyone does. <laughs> and uh, he had spread havoc around him for 30 years and had then recovered in Alcoholics Anonymous and become a very successful businessman and even somewhat belatedly a very successful family man. And that night I got the idea for a story which later turned out to be Days of Wine and Roses. And I started going to AA meetings on account of that. Purely by happenstance, I had to go for research for my story. Didn't touch me personally one bit. I would go to a meeting and listen to the stories, cry a little bit sometimes, and uh, then I'd go and have coffee afterwards with Eve or some of the other wonderful people who were helping me, and then I would meet some of my friends and have a few blasts and uh, <laughs> talk, uh, talk them to death about what a wonderful thing those alcoholics had got on to. <laughs> uh, and then I'd go home, business as usual. And then one night at an AA meeting, a very strange thing happened. man got up to talk, and as I looked at him, it was almost like seeing myself through the wrong end of a telescope. 20 years in the future. He was about 60 years old, white-haired, that part wasn't 20 years in the future. He was about, uh, he was about my size, stoop-shouldered, you'll uh, notice the physical similarities, and uh, it was a little eerie to me because he really did look like uh, me, older. And uh, and then he began to speak with a Texas accent. 
told about how he had been brought up in a home where liquor was not allowed, and as soon as he got away from it, he started drinking like a fish to prove to his mother who was boss. I laughed a little bit to myself because that was another thing we had in common. And as he continued, it was almost as though somebody who knew about my past had rigged up a joke on me. Uh, he was uh, really telling my life story. He'd been in the Navy, so had I. He had drunk much in many ports, and so had I. And he had been lucky in his early years and had never gotten into any serious trouble, no matter what he did. My story. Uh, he had also been the life of the party and a champion volume drinker, and he had never suffered from hangovers either. He even told the story how they had put a water glass full of plain, undiluted whiskey in his hand while he was telling the story, and he'd drink it and act like he didn't even know the difference and wouldn't let him see any effect. And uh, that had happened to me, too. Uh, then, at the age of 40, his life took a different turn. And I was uh, 38 at the time I listened to this story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he got up one morning after a long, wonderful party, and uh, he had a bad case of shakes for the first time in his life. He also had a vague, a hollow buzzing in his head, but uh, the shakes were the worst part. He tried his usual breakfast of three black coffees and three cigarettes. And that didn't help any. He was uh, due on an important appointment that morning, and uh, he was sort of amused to find himself in that condition. Never thought it happened to him, but he wasn't too worried about it. He'd always heard of the hair of the dog, and he decided that this would be a very good time to try it, and he tried it, and it worked. And... Uh, I don't think I need to go any farther along. That story was kind of a slow dissolve, and there he was, standing up there talking to us. <laughs> well, I did not have a drink with my friends that night. I was really too scared. <laughs> Could I be an alcoholic? What if I was uh, hooked on it myself? What if I couldn't stop? I never uh, thought about it, and I never had stopped long enough to find out. Never had occurred to me. Well, it turned out I wasn't. And, uh, and incidentally, uh, I didn't realize how lucky I was, because I can't drink coffee. I'd be in a hell of a shape. Now, I don't say that you saved me from alcoholism. We, we, don't, we couldn't know about that. Uh, maybe I haven't been saved. Maybe I've only been reprieved. I don't know. Or maybe I could have gone on like I was going forever and nothing would have happened to me. But I wouldn't want to bet on it. Now, I've not mentioned uh, higher power. I'm not going to make any guesses as to what part he played in all this luck that I had. I didn't ask him for it. But since I've been aware of it, I'm willing to thank him for it. That seems to work for you. Why should I fight City Hall? 
But what about my friends, all my drinking buddies those years, who didn't have the good luck to wander into AA because they were working on a story? Well, most of them, I'm happy to report are fine. Some of them are still getting stoned every night of the world, seem to be thriving on it. And uh, some of them, uh, luck didn't hold. Two of them, uh, one girl and one man, are in AA. But only after a long and stormy voyage on which they lost everything but their lives. Another, a good friend, is dead of alcoholism. At least two others are practicing alcoholics, devoting full time to it. I wonder what would have happened to them if they had walked into AA when I did. Maybe nothing. Maybe they'd have gone right on down that lonesome road, and maybe not. Maybe with luck, their lives would have been different. Now, I come to a question. What I want to know is, how long are we big drinkers going to have to depend on luck, good or bad, to teach us about alcoholism? Now, I know I've got an awful nerve to ask that question here in front of you, uh, uh, who have done so much to, uh, to get information to the public, to get information to anyone who wants it. But does a pre-alcoholic or a near-alcoholic or an early alcoholic know what he is or care? He might recognize the symptoms of early baldness in himself or early almost anything, but he's not going to recognize early alcoholism. He's not going to be that kind of a killjoy. But the information is there if he wants it. If they're in short form in that great book, Alcoholics Anonymous, on page 109, I quote, his drinking may be constant or it may be heavy, only on certain occasions. Perhaps he spends too much money for liquor, may be slowing him up mentally or physically, but he doesn't know it. Sometimes he is a source of embarrassment to you or his friend. He is positive he can handle his liquor, that it does him no harm, that drinking is necessary to his business. He would probably be insulted if he were called an alcoholic. This world is full of people like him. Some will moderate or stop altogether, and some will not. Of those who keep on, a good number will become true alcoholics after a while. End of quotes. Now, who reads that? Alcoholics and their wives, sometimes. Not by any means always. Writers writing about alcoholism sometimes. I'll tell you who doesn't read it. Pre-alcoholics don't read it. Early alcoholics don't read it. Near-alcoholics don't read it. Yes, there are also plenty of pamphlets available. Is AA for you? Alcoholism, the illness, danger signals for women drinkers, phases of alcohol addiction in males, 13 steps to alcoholism. These pamphlets can be the salvation of the apprentice alcoholic if he knows about them. I didn't know about them until recently. And I'm not the dumbest one of the bunch, <laughs> all these big drinkers. And if uh, he's interested enough to ask for them, that's the catch. How many are interested enough to ask? Why should they be? They've got their job, got their families, and they're having a ball in life. I'm talking about the pre-alcoholic. 
What's a little drink between friends? Why be a gloom peddler? These are the people who have not fallen into the rapids yet, but they're standing mighty close to the bank and in a high wind, and they could slip at any moment and go under three times before they knew what hit them. What can be done to keep them from falling in? Well, we get back to education, more education, and more education. I know you're not prohibitionists, and you're not evangelists, and you're not temperance workers, and I'm not asking you to be. I realize that in the very marrow of the bone of AA is the principle of laissez-faire. Join us if you want to. We won't drag you in and we won't cram our God down your throat. In fact, bring your own higher power. All you need is a desire to stop drinking. But what about that poor fellow on that slippery bank above those rapids, that pre-alcoholic? He doesn't want to stop drinking. He doesn't even want to moderate because he doesn't think he needs to. He is not a suffering alcoholic, not yet, so he doesn't come within the scope of AA tradition. His job may be suffering, but he's not suffering. The people who love him may be suffering, but he's not suffering, not yet. Traditionally, then, he is not yet ready for the AA message because he has not yet fallen into the rapids. Now, uh, it's not easy for me to stand here before you, you to whom I really do owe very much, maybe more than I know, and seem to be criticizing and uh, asking that you do even more than you're already doing. But I'm not criticizing, really. Uh, I don't know any other way to put it. I just think that what you've got is so great that everybody, alcoholic or not, could do with a pound or two of it. Maybe I even think it's greater than you think it is. And that's why I wish you'd push it a little harder. I know you must remain non-aggressive, but do you have to be so aggressively non-aggressive? <laughs> After all, you do mail out the book sometimes when it hasn't been asked for by the alcoholic himself, don't you? Yes. Officially, the fellowship does not engage in the field of education. Members may participate as individuals, but the fellowship itself is not involved. Now, is this rather stringent? Dictum, and I'm going to get in trouble here. I feel it. <laughs> if I get in trouble, you push that light, will you? <laughs> Is this rather stringent dictum possibly a throwback to the early days of AA when it was struggling for its own self-confidence for public acceptance, even for social respectability.
And is there room now in the context of 30 years of accomplishment and worldwide recognition for a reevaluation of this dictum? I'm only asking. I'm not saying, I'm just asking. Has not education been an integral part of this movement from the beginning? Are we not all here because of that education? To put it another way, is not AA the result of the many being educated in the divine revelation of the few? And yet those many are still few compared to the need. Now, I don't, and I know that there are individuals and groups and organizations, many of them working on the education angle, but you're the people with a track record. <laughs> and it's impressive, and it should be more available for others to see. One way to make it more available might be through uh, an extension of the concept, and I'm going to get in trouble again, of step 12, to include the discrete, and I repeat discrete, reaching out with knowledge to those in the unknown who may be in need of it, but may not know it and therefore may not ask for it. That would only be a small extension of the present proselytizing that is already allowed under step 12, carrying the message to suffering alcoholics. I understand you already have a step 13. Somebody told me about it. <laughs> And I want to congratulate you on that. <laughs> this would be uh, a cautious broadening of the base of step 12 to include getting, to include education without evangelism, to include getting more literature on alcoholism and pre-alcoholism in the schools and the newspapers and television motion pictures, even large business organizations, and certainly churches, without its necessarily having been asked for. There's plenty of room for another book, too, and God knows you got the writers for it, probably more than the Writers Guild of America has. <laughs> this one would be on pre-alcoholism. It might even be called a pre-alcoholic. No, I don't think for one minute that my constituents, the big drinkers, would flock to this book and read it and immediately moderate their drinking or stop drinking entirely, but some of them just might, and others might have a delayed reaction. And still others, probably those in the worst trouble, would pay no attention whatsoever and you would just have to get them later. <laughs> Less than 30 years ago, 
you were a young, uncertain fellowship having nightmares, or so I've read, of collapse and disintegration. And today, you know you're here to stay. You started with one small miracle and proliferated miracles into a commonplace. Who could have dreamed that from that small seed miracle, which sprouted 30 years ago, you would today be gathering miracles of reincarnation on a wholesale scale. There are, however, some things which I can think of which may be proliferating even faster than your miracles, alcoholics. And they cannot reach out for help unless they are aware. What greater challenge can your faith and the strength and the responsibility of your maturity have? And doesn't this challenge require of you a more confident reaching out to them? You live by faith. Through faith you grow not only in numbers and in strength, but in scope. Your faith reaches out, and as faith grows, so grows its reach. There are many who need this faith and have not yet been reached by it. And I believe that someday, through this higher power who works so well for you, they will be reached. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffy.